Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank our sponsors, UTS Animal Logic Academy and Wacom for helping make this podcast possible. I'm also excited to announce that this interview with Jason Galleon from Weta will be a two-hour double episode. Alrighty, let's get into it. Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with Jason Galleon from WetterFX. Jason started his career in VFX working at Blue Sky Studios on Ice Age. Since then, he's worked on blockbuster films including The Dark Knight, Avatar, Avengers, Justice League, Suicide Squad, and an array of interesting sequels. He's also worked at top studios including Sony Pictures, Framestore, and MPC, before moving to New Zealand and joining WetterFX. Throughout Jason's career, he's worked as a generalist, but he's also specialised in lighting and look dev, as well as managing teams as a CG and VFX supervisor. He's highly respected in the industry and is generous with sharing his knowledge. Alrighty, let's start episode one of this epic two-part interview. Thanks very much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. Thanks, Matthew. It's an honor to be here. What TV, music, magazines, or books inspired you when you were growing up? Well, I grew up in the 80s, so my most influential movies that I remember as a kid are The Last Starfighter and Tron and Goonies, movies like Enemy Mine and Beetlejuice, Um, Back to the Future, of course, you know, Star Wars, the Holy Trilogy, um, Willow and Gremlins and Short Circuit. You and me are roughly the same age, and... (laughs) My, I definitely think Enemy Minds. Enemy uh, Mine, yes. Rewatch it. It's not as good. Oh, it doesn't hold up. I just have this great memory of Louis Gossett Jr. and you know, and what is it, Dennis Quaid? Dennis Quaid, yeah. Landed on there. I just, I don't know. I, you know what? I haven't watched it probably for twenty years. Maybe I shouldn't. The Last Starfighter as well. I love the Last Starfighter. You can't take Last Starfighter away from me though. Oh, no, it's got, it's retro in its effects. Like it sort of looks cool in its retroness. Yeah. Where the other one's a bit, you know, <laughs> it's just a bit bad VFX. Well, what about the Cronenberg's The Fly? That's, uh, you know, not from my childhood, a little bit, tiny bit older when I watched that one and The Thing. The experience of going into the video shop, do you miss that? Oh, so much. Yeah, the, the new releases, Yeah. browsing the new releases. Absolutely, I miss that. Yeah, it's not quite the same. And it's like there was a good movie every time you went and now... Oh, seriously, yeah. And now there's nothing. I like look on Netflix and I can't find anything. You know? I know, I know. But, you know, it makes you it makes you go out of your comfort zone a little bit, I guess. But I do miss kind of going and just picking up a new release and then just a random movie. How did you discover 3D and VFX and how did you become so passionate about it? In architecture school, um, originally, when I went to graduate school in architecture at, at Rice, um, there was, we were drafting on, on, on drafting tables, you know, taking concepts and designing them in three dimensions, drawing them realistically with pen and paper, and even doing the lighting uh, with charcoal. We got this, uh, uh, this lab that just got put in the year that I was there of SGIs. Yeah. And they had Alias Wayfront installed on it. And this was right when Toy Story was coming out. And I I heard that Toy Story was done in the same software. And we were trying to figure out how to incorporate this 3D modeling into architecture. So I, I spent a lot of time in the lab and I just started to learn how to build. And then I learned how to taught myself how to animate. And I just found myself making a short film on the side. Yeah. Um, uh, my brother was a DJ uh, back then. He's 
far from a DJ now. Um, <laughs> and I started to just render these shots based on his DJing of this uh, this mosquito uh, called Caffeine Bug. And he was doing this DJ set when I was listening to one of my brother's uh, uh, sets. And I just I would spend a couple hours every night for the whole semester just doing this. And every, every I would render locally every shot. Every machine was a different shot. No one else was doing this in the lab. Um, and then I put it all on zip disk and put it together and made this uh, little movie. And when I went back to New York City for the summer, um, you know, I showed people, family, friends, and they loved it. And uh, I ended up being encouraged to send it to a couple local film festivals in New York and it got accepted to these things. And I started showing this short film and then I realized, you know, this is uh, this is something that I think I could dive deeper into. Yeah, that's how it started. How crap were computers back then? Uh <laughs> You know, it's so relative because I remember back then just they seemed so amazing. Yeah. But it probably in the same way that, you know, Apollo 11 was like, what, like like 48 megs of RAM or something like 512 megs of RAM, you know, like not even that. It probably seemed really high tech back then. And you probably didn't even have a computer at home. Like we were at uni at the same time and we had a computer lab and that's where I did all my work. Uh, do you have a computer at home? I did. I had a Dell, um, which I used mostly for Microsoft Word yeah. at the time for, for writing. Yeah, I, I don't think I had anything else on it. And of course, I had an Apple IIc growing up too. Very important part of childhood in the 80s. Over the years, which projects do you think satisfied you the most uh, or were the most successful? Some of the films I've worked on became the most financially successful movies like uh, uh, Avatar and the Avengers, you know, which uh, I think are probably total coincidences that I that I happen to work on those. Um, but as far as the most successful and satisfying for me, um, I think movies like The Dark Knight, yep. um, the Matrix sequels, Avatar and Avengers, and, you know, recently Suicide Squad were some of the more uh, satisfying projects for me. And what about Scooby-Doo? Oh, Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed you're talking about. Yeah, that's one of my uh, my finest works. It's a cultural touchstone, I think. <laughs> Belongs in the Smithsonian. Yeah, well, it's up there with Avatar, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm, I think so. Yes. Have you had any failures in your career and what did you learn from them? This sort of collaborative creativity and visual effects is is really just a series of failures until you stop failing. Yeah, you know, that's part of the creative process. And I think you deal with it by learning from each failure, like why didn't this or that work um, and how to avoid failure in the future. But, you know, it, I know that's not exactly what you're talking about. I think in terms of personal decision failures, I think, um, yeah, I've made some, I've made, I've made a bunch. I think one of them, the, one mistake that I've made a few times, which I've learned from is choosing big name project or just choosing a project over a team. In the past, a couple of times I've made the wrong decision, yep. I think, where I had an option of going to this project, this movie or that movie. And I chose the first option because it was the bigger film. It was the the bigger name. Yeah. Uh, whereas the other option was a maybe a smaller film, but a, a better opportunity for more creative freedom for myself. Yeah. And the reason why I think it was a mis- these these decisions were mistakes is because looking back on them I remember personally more the experience of working on a project and how satisfying that was than maybe the box office results, you know. Um, it's less important I think and I don't I don't think it's just me that I worked on a movie that was such a great learning experience, such a great collaborative experience yeah. versus another movie that might have been more difficult or less uh, less satisfying, but ended up maybe doing better um, in the box office. Yeah, well, I think the, in this sort of long-form work, it's really the journey, not the outcome. Yep. It's like playing sport. It's like it's the season, not the final. Um, but yeah, even more so, like it's not in your control if the movie's successful or not. Yep. Because you're such true. a small cog. That's totally true. So, yeah. But it took me a long time to start thinking about the journey and without the result. But 
I feel like I've got there and with the work that I do now, it's all about the day-to-day, not about the actual outcome. So Agreed. What's the hardest thing you've had to learn to progress your career? What gets you into trouble isn't what you don't know. It's what you're sure you do know, but you're completely wrong about. Okay. Um, And that's a lesson that I take to heart. Um, I think you can always learn new things. And I think being in visual effects is all about learning new things, new technologies, new new workflows, new tools um, to make what you need to do. But the problem is when you are so sure you know the right way to do something and you close your way, you close your mind off to other potential better solutions, creatively or technically. Give us an example of that. Let's say working on, you know, uh, feathers. If you think about it in terms of what you know, in terms of fur or something you've done before, you know, of, of you know, to change the look of, of a feather, maybe you need to change the, the density of the groom, you know, um, the, the, the width of the tip of the hair. Um, you're looking for a corollary because you're sure you know so much about uh, fur that that will transfer over to something completely different called feathers. Yep. Uh, when really what you need to do is learn more about feathers and learn what makes the difference between a feather and fur, the inside of each uh, of each barb and rachis in a feather um, has a medulla, has a, has, a, has a little air gap inside of it that changes the look of it. There's different rigidity in the rachis versus the barbs. I can go on, yeah. go, go on and on here. But uh, the point is that um, you have to acknowledge sometimes that you don't know anything about feathers in order to learn about it, in order to find the right solution to make feathers look real. Okay, cool. Good answer. Alrighty. So take a deep breath <laughs> and briefly describe your career path. How did you start working in film and VFX and then specialize in CG supervising? Well, I started off in New York City as an architect doing 3D fly-throughs and visualizations of skyscrapers that hadn't been built yet, modeling, texturing, lighting, comping, everything. Yep. And we got a call kind of out of the blue uh, to do a commercial with these skills. And me being the 3D guy at the architecture firm, um, I became suddenly overnight the animation director. Yep. Um, and we were doing uh, commercials. And from there, I went to Blue Sky Studios and became a, uh, a render wrangler at the essential bottom of the totem pole there. Um, even though I, I knew how to model and animate in light, I knew I didn't know anything about movie making. Yep. And they told me I was overqualified to be a render wrangler, but I told them I didn't care. I wanted to learn. Yep. Anyway, from Blue Sky Studios, where I worked on Ice Age, then went to San Francisco and worked at Giant Killer Robots, where there were a bunch of fellow ex-architects who started their own boutique studio. Yep. And they hired me to work on Terminator 3 and the Matrix sequels. And from there, went down to LA to Sony Pictures, uh, where I worked on I Am Legend and the Chronicles of Narnia, Ghost Rider, a few other movies. From there, I got hired to work in London on The Dark Knight at Framestore, and then MPC London on G.I. Joe. And then from there, got hired to work um, on Avatar at Weta for originally what was supposed to be a six months to a year uh, stint. And that was uh, about 12 years and two kids ago. And when did you meet your wife in this period? In, uh, in Los Angeles. Well, we met at Burning Man, actually. Okay. Um, but we were both living in, in Los Angeles. And uh, that was shortly before I moved to London. And she came with me and has been with me ever since. Is she a Kiwi? She is not, but uh, uh, our kids are now. <laughs> I'm not sure where to go with that. Uh, I was going to make a, a New Zealander joke, but I changed my mind. Uh, uh, All righty. So, what's a good object to model to show your skills to work in VFX? I don't think that there's an appropriate or inappropriate object. I think you can... Um, you can make even almost a cube look like an interesting model if you can sell the scale of it, if you can sell like a certain degree of, of detail on the surface of, of the cube to make it look like a, like a cube the size of Texas, yeah. you know? 
or you can you can equally try and overachieve and try to build a very complicated creature that just doesn't have any personality yeah. you know so to me it's less of the choice of subject as opposed to where you take it oh it's just that the people at method you know, one of the guys said that you know I just would prefer them just to model a really good tap that's not too far apart from what I'm saying as well. It, it almost doesn't matter what you do as long as how far and, and where you're able to take the model. What projects would you recommend as a passion project for artists to do to improve their portfolio or showreel? The best showreels that I've seen for visual effects are understated. They're reels that look almost like plate photography, like reference in the beginning, and then they reveal... Uh, the work behind it of the painstakingly modeled, um, you know, sculptural models or rendered invisible effects, lighting that show the amount of work that went into the subtleties of what you're trying to show. You know, I've seen amazing trees and and uh, I saw recently in a portfolio review the uh, a, a forest floor that I thought was just like the first plate of a comp that they were going to eventually show. Okay. But it just was so understated and not exaggerated that it looks so real. Um, and that to me is the most impressive work. Yeah. Uh, because in visual effects a lot, you're trying to create invisible effects that look real, that so real you don't even think about it. And I think just showing that restraint shows maturity in a show reel or, or portfolio. And what qualities are you looking for in a ZBrush or Creature Sculpture? One is that it's ready to rig for for animation or prepped to texture or, or and light, um, and that you can envision it in a shot without either of those, like without motion, without textures or or shaders, because the model is so good. Yeah. And I'm also looking for um, looking at the wireframes uh, efficiency. A uh, reality of working in visual effects is um, economy, is of time and scale. So you don't want your models to be inefficient and too heavy as well. You want them to be minimal, yep. um, have the least amount of polygons as they can, but enough to get the uh, the required actions and look across. Okay. What lengths do you usually recommend? The advice that I hear and is about a minute and a half. I think that, of course, there's the attention deficit that you always hear about of people uh, cutting out uh, when they're reviewing a, wheel, a reel after the first couple of, uh, of shots. I don't think you should play that psychological game of saving the best for last because I think that the majority of reviewers of a reel won't get to your last re- shot or your, your last project. They'll look at the first few and they're either sold to talk to you further or not. Okay. So I think a minute and a half with a good description, a good accompanying uh, document of what you did and why and how is enough to get the interview to talk through your process further. And what does it take to land a job at Weta and then thrive? Experience in some sort of visual effects, uh, preferably film or television, but more importantly, a willingness to learn and uh, comfort, uh, being comfortable with, uh, with technology and using and harnessing technology to create really cool things. You know, I think Kiwis down here in particular have a very big DIY attitude and Australians. Yeah. And uh, even though everything in vis- visual effects these days is so compartmentalized, I think a willingness to problem solve and, and figure out problems on your own um, while keeping your eye on the prize um, is key. And I think, that, I think that's what a lot of studios look for. What was it like in the early part of your career working at Blue Sky Studios? Uh, it wasn't long after Pixar had released uh, Toy Story and it was pretty much the dawn of 3D animation. Yeah, tell us about what it was like. Amazing. Um, I think I picked the right week to join because I remember my first week I got there, I started working on Ice Age and I see this trail of, you know, this entourage sort of walking by my desk and I look up and it's Steve Jobs. Um, I guess he was there doing a little tour because, you know, we were working on Ice Age and he owned Pixar and just did Toy Story. Yeah. 
so I sort of took that for granted as it was always going to be like that every day. And then uh, it was owned by Fox. And a couple of weeks later, Rupert Murdoch invited our whole studio to uh, to the launch of his new yacht <laughs> in Chelsea Piers in New York. And I thought, you know, this is the best job ever. Yeah. You know, I'm doing these talking animals, hanging out with, uh, you know, these you know yachts and Steve Jobs walking by. But it turned out that that was kind of an anomaly of a couple of weeks. Um. <laughs> You're not the only one. I was talking to like an Australian artist who worked at Pixar all the way up until recently. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was saying that they flew him out for Saving Nemo or what was that Nemo movie? <laughs> Flying Nemo or Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo to the Barrier Reef so they could see what it was like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, at, uh, later on, uh, you know, I'll tell you at Sony, uh, you know, when it was working on Surf's Up, uh, it was a... a uh, surfing penguin movie uh they brought out uh kelly slater and and uh, rob machado to give us surfing lessons in malibu for two days yeah uh which was great oh so he was saying also that with steve jobs it's like after they got sold and were owned by disney it went from trips to the barrier reef to uh getting a packet of chips yeah <laughs> well blue sky was pretty generous and they were great but you know it was it was amazing there because um some of the people there were still some of the smartest people I know, you know, uh, you had Ludwig, like Carl Ludwig and Chris Wedge, you know, these like flew MIGs on the on the side, you know, the literal like rocket scientists. And uh, I would go to lunch with, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine in the art department at the time, Enrico Casarosa, um, who's now the director of Luca. You know, and he would just uh, be there on his on his drafting table, you know, and we would hang out and have lunch. And, you know, little did I know that uh, he would direct one of my kids' favorite movies years later. That's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. And what did you learn working at Blue Sky? And how did that help you develop your career? Well, that was the first uh, proper visual effects studio that I've ever worked on. Um, I learned what it took to make an animated movie. I learned there what what um, what dailies and what sweatbox was. I learned the visual effects pipeline in a nutshell. Um, I learned what it what it meant to uh, to take uh, animation notes and and lighting notes, and I learned a lot about animation from Chris Wedge directly. Um, yeah, he was uh, he was really an amazing eye. Um, and just was such a cool opportunity to be able to work with him. And a lot of those guys at my coworkers at Blue Sky are now at Pixar doing, continuing on their amazing work and other places as well. After that, you moved to uh, Giant Killer Robots. Um, what was it like working at Giant Killer Robots? And what did you learn uh, working in this period? Giant Killer Robots was a great experience started by um, three guys, Pete Oberdorfer, John Vager, and Mike Schmidt. Um, and it's since been disbanded. But uh, when I started there, there were 17 people in this tiny studio um, on Natoma Street in Soma in San Francisco. Yep. And at this point in my career, I had done a bunch of you know buildings and, and fly-throughs, but only one movie uh, where I was the compositor on. Um, in the end, uh, on Ice Age, and I come in there, and they, I show them my essentially a an architecture portfolio, um, and I explained that I did just work on a feature film, and they hired me on the spot to work on Terminator Three and and the Matrix sequels. Yep, and it was great. What I learned there was how to be a generalist. Okay. What I learned there was how to um, to be responsible for yourself and and build the shot from start to finish, and I learned how to apply my architecture and design knowledge to visual effects and film. Do you think that working on sequels um, is easier than working on big budget, you know, like Avatar? Like you worked on The Matrix and the follow ups of The Terminator, which were, I would assume, lower budget sort of spectaculars. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the difference is between a sequel and a first movie? Working on a sequel is a little bit easier because you've established uh, usually the assets. You've established the look, the feel. Yeah. Um, not always. You know, every sequel I've worked on and, you know, in working in visual effects, you work on a lot of sequels. There's always new assets, new characters 
um, new effects. You know, you're always trying to one up where the, the movie is always trying to one up the uh, the predecessor. Yeah. But it the the benefit typically that you get in a sequel is that you do get to reuse um, some of the previous characters and you can focus on the new things. So you are able to build upon. Yeah. Um, which is not always the case though. And what was with the Independence Day sequel? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I worked on that as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was like one of the greatest like openers of like a promo for a movie of all time. It was so exciting. It was. And yep. then they made a sequel <laughs> to try and top that. I'm surprised you're surprised that uh, that Hollywood made a sequel <laughs> of a oh. successful movie. <laughs> they, I, think th- I think they would make a sequel of Titanic if they could. I don't think anybody has watched that second uh, <laughs> Independence Day. I saw it like running on one of those channels that are like the back channel, and I'm like, yep. "What is this?" Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's one. That's one of the the the, the trade offs of working in visual effects is that uh, a lot of your work ends up in the discount, you know, bargain bin yeah. of the uh, of the market. You know, that's just that just comes with the job. Do you mind if we stop for a little moment while I thank my sponsors? Not at all. The UTS Animal Logic Academy offers a one-year accelerated master's in animation and visualization. Students work on professional-level productions to best prepare for specialized roles in well-known studios. The Academy's high rate of employment and award-winning projects turbocharge launching your career. Find out more at Animal Logic Academy dot uts dot edu dot au have you had a good break are you ready to go i am all right let's get into it mm-hmm. uh, i just want you to briefly just describe sort of the size of weta uh, and how it's evolved since you arrived it's about i'd say about four times as big as when i started um, yep. And it, it's evolved like any other company would in in a decade or so, you know. And do you know anybody? Like, do you know like a lot of people? You know, I I don't know everybody at the company. Yeah. Um. Any anymore? I think at one point I knew the majority, um. But I certainly know enough people. And what do you think the difference is between working in a big company like Weather and a small one? The focus on specializations that happens in larger studios versus generalists in smaller studios. You have to be very DIY and wear a lot of hats in a small studio. There are more political and um, and professional boundaries in terms of uh, workflow and departments in larger studios. So it's a little bit harder to um, to expand your and flex your different muscles um, in a larger studio. Yeah. Um, without going through a little bit of bureaucracy. And you've been there for a long time, yeah? I have, yes. Like how many years? It's been about 12 years and two kids now. What does your wife do? My wife owns an ice cream company called Wooden Spoon in Wellington. And I wouldn't imagine there'd be much ice cream in a cold place like Wellington. You'd think that, but uh, they eat ice cream everywhere, it turns out. You know, and... (laughs) Yeah, um, I I used to uh, be the one with the cool job in the family, um, yeah. you know, to the kids working on uh, superhero movies. But now my kids and their friends are way more interested in my wife's ice cream than in my uh, sequels that I work on. Uh, like when they get a bit older, they'll be more interested in you know, the you know superhero movies than uh, <laughs> than the ice cream, uh, especially since it's so cold in Wellington. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like working at Weta and what your average day looks like? Well, I typically start off my day catching up with our production team, uh, talking through uh, the scheduling and, and challenges and, and requirements of the day and week. And then it's off to dailies where we review uh, the shots for assets and, and lighting and comp. Yep. And then uh, at some point, after that, it'll be asset dailies where we go through all of the um, individual assets uh, and critique them and give feedback on those. And okay. between those, I'm meeting with different departments constantly, um, chasing 
different issues and problems to solve. And when there aren't problems to solve, I'm looking at ways to make the whole pipeline and workflow go even smoother. Cool. And could you tell us a little bit about that pipeline? Could you describe your pipeline, what software you use, and what hardware and renderers um, do you use at Weta? Well, I can't get too deep into the proprietary software, of course, uh, but you know some of the stuff is off the shelf, like Maya, Katana, Nuke, uh, which of course, like any studio, gets adopted to the needs um, of the show, and uh, and and what it does render with uh, Manu- uh, Manuka. So now I want to talk about being a, a good leader. Describe what makes a good leader or supervisor. To be a great supervisor or leader in visual effects, I think you have to treat the show and the team as an ecosystem, yep. almost like a terrarium. You have to balance it and and feed it. Um, you have to uh, think of what the show needs, of what the shot needs, not what you need. Okay. You need to understand what the vision is in terms of like a vector, in terms of where it's going, not in terms of the individual shot or or pixel you have to look at the the whole okay. um, and see how every piece falls into it and i think you have to almost think of it as uh, as a chessboard where you're focusing a lot as a leader or a supervisor in getting the right uh, layout of the board to best position yourself for the end game and not worry so much about the individual moments but always kind of trying to keep your eye on on the prize which is you know a great film great visual effects as a philosophy in regards to communication what do you think is the most important values that a good leader has the ability to listen is very important but the way you listen is very important like one of the philosophies that i have yeah. in communicating and and listening is when someone says something obvious, assume they're saying something subtle. Yep. And when someone says something obviously wrong, assume they're saying something counterintuitive. Yeah. I think that it's important to confront your own biases. In uh, by that I mean, uh, I try and avoid the availability heuristic. You know, there's uh, you're always. Uh, more likely to think that the solution that comes to mind is the most probable one of success. But that's just the one that you know. I think when you're working with a team of experts and very talented creative people, which you're likely to do in visual effects, you want to go outside of your comfort zone. You want to be comfortable with uncertainty and listen to what they have to say and accept that just because you're the supervisor or the one in charge, you might very likely might not be the one with the best answer. Okay. And what it takes for that is a, is a, is quite a bit of humility to be able to listen to people that are so-called under you that majority of the time will probably have a better answer than you. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's your job to steer that ship in the right direction. Um, and it doesn't always have to be the direction that you instinctively want to go just because you're more comfortable with that. Yeah, well, it's funny. I've often thought that uh, my managers didn't know the right way to go. You're probably right. Felt ignored, uh, but mainly because they just didn't want to do the right thing because it was harder. Yep, or unfamiliar. Psychologically, I think it, it makes sense if something is familiar or seems easier. You know, you, you, you rarely, I find, in... Uh, especially the beginning parts of a show, want to go for the path of least resistance. You know, I I look at it like a river, like kayaking down a river, which is something I actually hate to do, but but I've done a lot. And, you know, when you're kayaking down a river, um, like with rapids, by the time you're in the rapids, it's too late to do anything. Yeah. Except for paddle and hope to survive. What you really want to do in kayaking is to paddle in the right place way before you hit the rapids, which won't be the path of least resistance will always lead you to the rocks and against the rocks and you'll end up tipping over or, or repairing your boat. But if you paddle with 
um, it'll take less effort earlier on and get yourself in the right position so when the rapids do come, you're better placed and you don't have to paddle like hell to get out of it. You know, that's how you be a good supervisor, I think. You see the rocks coming well in advance and you avoid them before they hit you. Cool. All right. Well, that's pretty interesting and deep answer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that deep. So I now want to move on to creature development. Can you tell us about some of the different creatures and animals or monsters you've worked on? I've done penguins. I've done uh, I've done dogs on Scooby Doo. I've done squirrels. I've done a lot of aliens um, and a bunch of monsters. So, what you want to think about when you're developing a creature is the uh, uh, the context of what this creature is. Yeah. Some of the creatures I've worked on are uh, are realistic and photoreal, like some of the dogs and cats I've worked on recently. Yeah. Others. I've worked on dogs and cats, like for Scooby-Doo, uh, that are meant to be very cartoony. And the way that that informs your creature design process is the ROMs, the range of motion. Yeah. Uh, and all of these things have to be uh, taken into account early on. We've gone so far in some of the monsters that we've worked on to draw um, anatomical uh almost autopsies of these fictional animals and aliens yep. so we can understand the inside of them, the the impossible structure that undergirds them. Yeah. A lot of the time in your creature simulations that you'll use, you have underlying fascia and muscle systems. And some of these will be muscle systems that aren't bipedal or even quadrupeds. Yeah. A lot of times you have to build fat layers and um and muscle systems of things that don't exist in nature. Um, And the best thing you can do is try and future-proof it by doing range of motion tests, by trying to create these shots that are not shots, but to some example, extreme motions and also subtle motions of performance of what you'll need to do so that you can put that all the way through the pipeline. You can understand the musculature and armature of these creatures. Yep. You can see how the hair and the fur moves on them. You can light them uh, in these different motions um, and range of motions in different lighting contexts. Okay. So I think that's the, 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 the best way to start developing a creature. Can you explain the process of developing the creature from initial brief to completion in point form? Sure. I think the first thing you do is, of course, read the script. And a lot of times the client or a studio will have artwork for these creatures. And uh, what you want to do next is design it with um, artwork, not in three dimensions. Yep. And I think this is a very important thing with visual effects and technical um, artistry in general. Um, we have very complex tools and they're very steep learning curves. And if you do creature design in Maya, in katana, you know, um, yeah. in anything, you are unconsciously uh, more likely to let your knowledge or lack of knowledge of these tools filter through into the creature design, whether you want it or not. Yeah. You're more likely to have uh, radial or, or or bilateral symmetry because it's very easy to mirror. Okay. Um, you're you're very likely to have you know uh, joints that are hinges because. It's very easy to do that, uh, to very, very easy to draw a joint in two dimensions. Okay. Um, what you need to do is you need to create it like in architecture as well with pen and paper, uh, you know, even, even sketches. So you understand this character. How do you come up with ideas to create textures and the look of the skin on creatures? You want to find like um, corollaries in nature even if they're not directly um, uh, intuitively you know, uh, parallel, you might find things like uh, the palm of your hand might be a great uh, texture for the skin of an, of, uh, uh, of an alien. Yep. You, know? um, you, you might find uh, the baleen of, 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 a, of a whale might be great for the, the back fur of another creature. You get the point where you're doing it on hand and you're drawing all the, and you get to something you're happy with, then what's the rest of the process? Well, then you start to assemble the creature. Then you start to do the model. But then at this stage, I think you want to start uh, doing a feedback loop. 
through models, yep. through your rigging, and through animation, and even all the way through look dev, okay. because all these things inform each other. You know, there's the obvious things of the the stretching of of the the animal in motion. You know, the way that the eyes move are typically very important. Yep. You know, I deal a lot with with eyes, and a lot of these things you don't see until uh, until it goes all the way through. And one thing you have to be very wary of in visual effects creature design is just throwing stuff over the fence from department to department and not going back. I think good creature development is a circular process where everybody is informing each other and the whole creature is is moving together as one. Just because you have a good model doesn't mean it'll be rigged well. And if it's if it's rigged well, you're probably going to need changes in the model. Yeah. You know, the, and the displacement in the model, some of them might need to be extracted and put into the shader as well. So that leads me to the other questions, which is once you've got the model decided on, the creature decided on, what's the what are the fundamental things that you got to get right to make it work well in the pipeline? You have to start testing it in shot as soon as you can. Yep. And after your ranges of motion are done, you have to start testing it in shots yep. right away because uh, there's always going to be things that you didn't foresee. You know, you want to you want to see it in shot context lighting yep. uh, because it'll be all well and good if it works in your studio light rig, but if it doesn't hold up in your location light rig, you're not going to be able to sell the creature. How important is it for the creature to function within the restrictions of nature and physics? Very. And I think that also points to another larger concept of visual effects, um, which is internal logic. In creature design and in visual effects in general, you need to show an internal consistency and logic in order to sell um, these impossible things, you know, be it a lower gravity in another uh, on another planet, yeah, you have to have weight. If you're making a 150 foot tall uh, monster, for example, with a giant eyeball, hypothetically, mm. you know that doesn't exist. But you need to know how much that creature weighs, yeah. so that when it takes a step, you know how far into asphalt that footprint is going to go. You need to know um, how much the ground will shake when the camera is right next to it. You need to know when it's when it hits a building how much it might take out of it. You know, these are things that if it's if it's too light or if it changes from shot to shot, the audience isn't going to know the the intrinsic weight of this thing, but it will break their believability. And with the sculpt, how do you do the revision processes with the sculpt? Is it a fast and fluid, like on illustration? It depends on the creature. It's, it's always harder when your um, when your sculpt involves feathers or hair and fur, yeah, uh, because then you're adding groom to it. The sculpt also will possibly affect the rigging and skinning as well. So all the more reason to always uh, keep your creature design team working together. You what you don't want to do is give a modeling note and have a modeling change, and then try and put that into shots and. The topology has changed so much that the rigging has changed and the UVs and texture have broke. What's the uh, what's the important thing as a supervisor you need to focus on when communicating with your team about the development of creatures? To future-proof it, um, to give it a personality that uh, matches the vision of the director, yeah. and to make it robust enough that the director can throw you uh, different notes, performance notes, and your creature will be able to hit those notes. What you don't want is to uh, to just give it such a narrow range of motion of things that you just happen to think of that when next thing you know your creature has to hug somebody else that you discover that your, uh, that your arms can't do that motion. Okay. When it comes to uh, modeling and sculpting animals, do you usually find a subject there's never one animal that you're matching, yep. you know, because a lot of times maybe it's from YouTube or from, you know, maybe you go, you go to the zoo literally and take a bunch of footage and you meet the zookeepers and they take you behind the, the scenes. And, you know, sometimes they bring in, we bring in animals and we're, yep. you know, and like, like one example that was really fun was a, a movie called Blade Trinity. 
another sequel, a uh, vampire uh, superhero movie where there were vampire dogs. Yeah. And uh, there was a vampire Rottweiler and a, two vampire Rottweilers and a vampire Pomeranian. Yeah. And a couple of the people um, at work had Rottweilers and another had a Pomeranian. So they brought them in and we, um, we actually took uh, almost like dental impressions of their teeth to match, to match these teeth. We took different aspects of these dogs and personalities and, and matched that as well of their, their facial expressions. But we also looked online and we got, you know, this scar from this dog, you know, this pose from that dog. And that's what you're doing a lot. You know, you're taking different components from different references. Yeah. You're, you're rarely choosing one image from one uh, source. You are mixing and matching cafeteria style. And if you're an artist who wants to get into this stuff and they want to they want to develop creatures, because I meet a lot of people who want to do creatures, what would you say to them to develop, to have as their portfolio? I think one thing you can do is to show basic creatures, humans, um, dogs, animals, because if you can't do the simple real world correlations, you won't be able to do the impossible creatures. So I think in order to be able to do an alien with five legs, you certainly have to understand how a two-legged person walks and a four-legged animal walks. You have to know the fundamentals. The fundamentals are the same with almost anything. Yeah. And you have to be able to, uh, to adapt and to understand how to create an internal logic of maybe, you know, a, a, a giant uh, creature with antennas. Yeah. These are things that you have to look at reference and figure out the right way to sell it and rig it. How did you develop your management skills when you started leading teams? And what were the important steps along the way? Well, at least part of my journey to management and supervising was being an artist for so long and knowing what it is to be on the box. Yep. And started all the way back from render wrangling. Yep. So I think that I've kind of risen through the ranks in a way that gives me a little bit of empathy towards um, all the different departments yep. and how they work together, having worked in effects and models, creatures, lighting, compositing, yep. that I have been able to get a good sense of the interdependencies. Yeah, I do try and uh, take that into account and to look at all of the departments and how they relate to each other and manage them with that in mind. Okay. How do you learn to be a good manager? One of the big things is role models. Yeah. Using your uh, examples of people that you've respected, like visual effects supervisors and other CG supervisors and, uh, and people that I've seen lead successfully, at least in the way that I would like to lead. And also kind of applying other almost like philosophies and things that I've read, like uh, books like Thinking Fast and Slow by the, by the economist Danny Kahneman. Yeah. You know, have sort of influenced the way that I that I think in terms of uh, in terms of management and and resourcing. What other resources did you use to learn along the way? Have you listened to any podcasts or those sort of things? For creativity and inspiration, I look at um, websites and podcasts like Shot Deck, okay, or Scratch Scratch a Pixel. Daniel Toasty's CG Career is a, is a good one of of a lot of peers of mine that are that interview and talk about their processes. Yep. So I think those are the um, the websites and podcasts that I go to. And then I also apply things that I do outside of my work life to my management and supervising philosophy, like my um, my my long distance running and marathons. Uh, the way I think about those are very similar yep. the way to the way I think about um, visual effects supervising. When it comes to leadership How have you evolved from when you started managing to now? What have you changed? Oh, I've changed a lot of things. I'd like to think I've become a lot more humble. I'd like to think that I've made it less about my own creative vision or what I perceive to be my own creative vision and more about channeling the, uh, the vision of the show 
of the director yep. of what the what the show needs and pointing it towards there and pointing the ship in the right direction, so to speak, and making sure that we get there in one piece, okay. as opposed to making it about me, making it about the show and the project. What advice would you give to someone who wanted to move into uh, managing, then moving into CG supervising? What advice would you give to those people? Most people in this industry start off or at least have a an expertise in one discipline, be it um, lighting, compositing, models, look dev. I think spend some time outside of your comfort zone in other departments, other disciplines that you're not an expert in. Yep. Be a beginner again and an intermediate and learn what it takes from their point of view because if you want to manage them, you have to understand them. And every different department in every different studio will have a very different culture. And I think you have to relate to that in order for them to be able to trust you and where you're trying to take them. When do you think, in your experience, it's a good time to switch studios? I think it's always good to leave at the top of your game, like Seinfeld. It's such a small industry, you don't want to burn any bridges. You don't want to become burnt out or have the studio burnt out on you before you move. And I think sometimes it's incumbent upon you, upon the the worker, uh, the VFX artist, to switch studios to pursue a better opportunity. Sometimes, sometimes you can get stuck in a, in a place with no room for advancement. So I think that there's no real solid answer of when it's time to move on. But if it feels like you need to move on, it's probably already a little bit too late. On that note, we've reached the hour mark. It might be time to move on ourselves. Oh, seriously, yeah. And have a little break before we move on to the next episode. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if we get a cup of tea and have a break? Okay. We'll continue in the next episode. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. And don't forget to become part of our jobs network if you're looking for a better job in Australia or New Zealand. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.